well, we're thinking about this topic of how do I make a change. And we're thinking about that because in the new year, there's something in us that likes to capture the newness of the new year and starts to think about, well, what might it be like to renew certain aspects of our life or maybe to become a new person in certain ways. And so new workout regimes are signed up for, uh, new gyms are, um, are joined, uh, new books are picked up, new habits are adopted. It's all part of the New Year's resolutions, right? Um, but according to research done uh, by the online fitness app Strava, who looked at their 800 million user base, um, January the 19th, just coming up this week, is what they've labeled as Quitter's Day, because it's the day when people, on average, give up on their New Year's resolutions, um, or when they no longer carry forward on their new Strava fitness regimes and all the rest of it. So, look, if you can just make it beyond Wednesday, you're already ahead of the curve, and that's got to be a tick in the box in the new year, right? So keep going. But the reason that I suppose we're aware of that and we get a kind of, you know, a sense of, yeah, that makes sense is because so many of our resolutions, um, not just in New Year's, but at any point in the year when we seek to make a change in different ways, uh, whether it's a small change, just adopting a new habit that might lead to a better kind of style of living or healthier aspect of living, or whether it's something more foundational, like genuinely seeking to change in a character flaw where you really want to be different. So often they're dashed on the rocks of reality, aren't they? Which leads to this very important question, you know, how do I make a change? And here's how I'm going to try and tackle it um, this afternoon. First of all, the crisis, I will call it, of real change. Then secondly, the holistic nature of real change we see in Scripture. Then thirdly, the grace of real change, and lastly, the power to really change. But I want to start by suggesting to you that in our culture at large, there is a crisis when it comes to changing. Um, and I think we see the crisis because of a tension between two opposite realities that we're facing. On one level, as a generation of younger adults, um, in general terms, there is a greater desire to see um, character integrity, authenticity, honesty, moral formation in ourselves and particularly in our leaders than arguably ever before. So lots of sociologists point this out, that when people are surveyed, the emphasis they place on character formation in leaders is greater than ever before. Also, not just leaders, but also in institutions. It's no longer enough now for a business, for example, just to have a great product line um, and a great bottom line, you know, making profit for their shareholders. Increasingly, we also want to know as consumers that they're also making a difference in the world, that they have a mission statement, that they're really committed. And that's not just a bit of fluff on top of the cappuccino. That is something that really matters to them, that they really want to improve the world. And that's not just businesses. It goes across all of the type of institutions around us. So there's this overriding desire for morality, ethics, authenticity, honesty across society. That's, on one level, a good thing, I, I, I put it to you. But at the same time, there's this tension created by the fact that as we reflect on the news and look around us, we feel that we're being let down by our leaders, by our institutions like never before. I mean, I, I didn't you know, pick that kind of illustration just for the week we've been through, but obviously it makes a point, right? Just this last week, yet another revelation of parties under lockdown by the very people who are telling us the moral imperative of not acting in such a way. Uh, and you just, it gets to a point when you, you just think the breathtaking hypocrisy of it all. And then you realize that they're not even going to resign over it, they're going to try and brazen it out. And you think, 
you know, what's going on. Unless you think I'm just beating up on the conservatives, I, I'm not. I think it goes across all institutions of all different political leanings. We could equally take the anti-Semitism scandal under Labour. Lest you think I'm finger-pointing, we could take multiple denominations within churches and the abuse scandals that have been revealed as well. We can take um, local councils, for example, with a Grenfell Tower scandal. We can take banks and the LIBOR fixing rate scandal or PPR. I mean, the point is any institution, there's been a, an expose of the moral failure, right? And also, is there any leader in the public eye who's not been exposed in one way? And that's the crisis. Because when you try to embody both a higher-than-ever ideal but a lower-than-ever-real reality, then you get a tension which creates a crisis, I put it to you. So this is a particularly poignant question at any generation, but I, I reckon it's a really poignant one for, for us as we, as we try to navigate that crisis. So how can we um, get the change that we long for? And lest, I think you, or lest you think that we're just putting it out there, what about the crisis you might be feeling in your own life as you enter into this new year? High ideals, fallen realities. How do you bridge that? How do I bridge that in my own life? Well, let's think about, firstly, the holistic nature of real change. And for that, I want us to look at the Beatitudes as they're known um, from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And the, the reason I, I want to look at this text is on one level, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most, if not the most influential body of teaching on personal formation and ethics that the world has ever known. Its influence on societies, on Western society in particular, is unrivaled um, in its importance. And the Beatitudes, as they're called in chapter 5, really frame that and give us in um, espresso form, if you like, the type of virtues that God wants to see us forming in our lives. And as you read through the Beatitudes, what I want you to notice is just how holistic they are, how they defy easy categorization um, particularly when it comes to the political and social spectrum. Let me read them again um, to you and just notice as we go through the eight Beatitudes how holistic they are. Verse 3 of chapter 5 of Matthew, page 968. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's say you were reading this with a particular political view in mind. One of the things you would notice about this as you come to the text is that it talks a lot about a number of the virtues and the dispositions that you hear those who are slightly right of center, who are more conservative or in American setting more Republican, that they would talk a lot about, that they would emphasize a lot about as the, the type of ways to see change in society. So for example, you have a focused on hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that is right living, the importance of each individual fulfilling their responsibility to do what is right and to care about what is right. Then you also see, for example, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, personal purity and sanctity in all of the surveys of the political spectrum show up as being very important for those right of center as well. So you see particular virtues that you would see emphasized on the right of the political spectrum, both across the Atlantic and also here in the UK. But then you read on and you also see the number of the virtues that the left emphasized particularly as well. So blessed are 
the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Here is the idea of showing mercy to your fellow human being, a sense of living with and bearing with people who are different, and the left emphasized that significantly, or blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, a concern for what the Bible would call shalom, that broader peace in society, the kind of collective benefit of a concern to look after the marginalized and the vulnerable and bring peace when there's been injustice. In other words, as you read the Beatitudes, it defies easy categorization. On one hand, you read it, and it it affirms a lot of things that people more conservative affirm. And on the other hand, you you read it and it affirms things that people who are more liberal confirm. And my point is this is not a Western political text. This is not just trying to play to a particular political or social leaning. This is a heavenly text. That's why it's topped and tailed with that phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here is Jesus Christ, the King of heaven, revealing to us what he wants. Not just a political party, not just a political manifesto, but holistic change, which challenges all of us, affirms some desires in all of us, and also contradicts some of the leanings in all of us as well. Um, Let me put it another way. I've been enjoying watching um, Cobra Kai season four, don't judge me. It's been very popular. You've probably been enjoying it as well. And look, I don't think it's just because it's from my generation. And so there's the nostalgia of the karate kid. And here we see Danny LaRusso and Johnny Lawrence, who are about my age bracket as well, now looking a little bit the worse for wear and trying to rediscover the nimbleness and, you know, karate elasticity of youth. But I think one of the reasons that it's been so popular is not just for nostalgia, but because the central tension in Cobra Kai, without giving anything away, is, I think, the central tension at the moment in Western society, or a central tension, let's put it more moderately. That is that Danny LaRusso represents the left of the political spectrum. He's the son of an immigrant, come good, with a great concern for those around him. He's always trying to do good to those who are marginalized and those who are disaffected around him. Even his own karate kind of is left of the political spectrum because it's about playing a good defense, not about going and being aggressive in the offense, right? But then you've got Johnny Lawrence, and he's a classic Republican in America. Why? He's a beer-drinking, petrol-loving, you know, individualist who says, life's going to do you no favors, strike first, strike hard, go out and get it. And so the tension between these two is really the tension in Western society. How do you live together, though, when you're so different in those two views of life? Which is right? Which is wrong? Can you harmonize the two? You have to wait till the end of season four to see how they resolve it if you've not watched it. And I wonder if that's part of our problem. When it comes to real change, do we even know the direction we want to go? Should I become you know, more left of center, more right of center? Should I have a greater social conscience? Should I have a greater sense of personal purity? Do I do all of those? If it's all of the above, how do I do that? And what we see in the Beatitudes is this just wonderfully integrated, holistic view of the human life well lived. A radical concern for personal purity. Jesus will challenge the Pharisees later in the Sermon on the Mount and say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. You know, he's saying you've got to have a greater sense of purity than even the Pharisees. He says, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And yet, at the same time, you see a profound concern for the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable, a desire for mercy and forgiveness, a desire to raise up the weak and the ostracized. How do you hold all of those together? It's something we don't do well today, but it's something that Jesus does. The holistic nature 
of real change. See this picture. And of course, the wonderful thing is you see this lived out in Jesus' life. He doesn't just talk about this. He lives this out with astonishing beauty and great integrity. The holistic nature of real change. But that leads us naturally onto the grace of real change, because as you see this, I wonder if you find it very attractive like I do, but you also find it quite intimidating and uncomfortable. Let me explain why. Imagine that um, I was down playing tennis yesterday, um, and imagine that at the tennis court, I'm having a good day, and I don't know, I'm winning more of my fair share of games than I'm losing as I play. And then as I'm winning, I'm feeling quite good about myself, so then in this scenario, let's imagine that Roger Federer turns up at the court and says, you seem to be winning, why don't we play? And I think, wow, wow, I mean, get to play against Roger Federer, arguably the greatest tennis player of all time. You know, what a, what a great privilege. But then he says, as the crowd gathers, but I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to bring my A game. How would I feel now? How would it feel once we're three sets in? Well, on one level, it would be an enormous privilege, wouldn't it? I mean, I get to see up close and personal Roger Federer play tennis. I mean, the beauty of his swing. But as every ball whistles past me, wouldn't I find it also humiliating? As the crowd see my imperfection shown up, wouldn't I find that, find that profoundly uncomfortable? And that's just tennis, which doesn't, in the nicest possible way, forgive me, matter as much as moral formation. So how do you feel when you see the life of Jesus Christ, the luminous Nazarene? A life of unparalleled beauty. You're drawn to it. But then as every moral ball whistles past you and you realize your own failures, doesn't, don't you find it in one sense shameful? Don't you find it profoundly uncomfortable? Don't you find it in the truest sense of the word humiliating as it humbles you? That was the experience of people back then when they encountered Jesus Christ. They were drawn to him, but then it was so exposing and uncomfortable, which is why if if Jesus Christ is just a moral teacher, it's not enough. Because it leaves you with a high ideal, but you can't do it. No one can live this way. Yes, we say, Jesus, that is the right way to live. Love your enemies, he says, and pray for those who persecute you. And then you, you get a real enemy, and you think, how on earth am I supposed to do that? And the point is, of course, that this is not just this is not just teaching for us to follow, but this is also ingrained in it grace that shows us how this change can come about. Look with me at the Beatitudes and, and follow them in more close detail now. Do you notice the phrasing of the repetition of each of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Now, just pause for a moment. Don't gloss over it. Read it carefully. I put it to you that every moral philosophy, every other world religion apart from Christianity would put this differently. It would say, if you are poor in spirit, you will be blessed. But that doesn't say, there's no conditional here. It says, blessed are you, the poor in spirit. In other words, Christianity does not teach, if you do this, then you will receive God's blessing in your life. That's works. It teaches you are blessed, and now you can live this out in your life. That's the opposite dynamic. It's what Christianity calls grace. Lest you think I'm overworking the text, look at the first two Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, that's a strange virtue. Poverty in spirit would, what, would be what you and I might call spiritual or moral bankruptcy. So blessed are those who acknowledge that morally and spiritually speaking, you've got no money in the bank. How is that a virtue? And then blessed are those who mourn. That is, blessed are those who are really cut up about that reality. 
In other words, the entry point and the way on in Christianity is to say, I lack the spiritual resources to be this. I lack the spiritual and moral resources to do this and to realize this change in my life. I can't do it, and I'm deeply upset about that. That only makes sense if there's grace that says the entry point is to acknowledge you can't do it, but God is going to do it for you. God is going to do it in you. Not saying, if you can do this, you will be blessed, but saying, you are blessed, so now go and do this. You'll forgive me, those of you who are regulars, I've used this illustration before, but it sums it up, I think, really well. One of the great stories that children love, but also adults love, is Beauty and the Beast, and not just because it has a singing teapot in the um, cartoon. We love Beauty and the Beast because it, it gets this dynamic. I mean, what's the storyline? Well, the storyline is a, a prince who's out of form initially masks his inner ugliness. And he's cruel to people around him. So one day he comes into contact with an enchantress who uses her power to change him into a beast so that his outer form now matches the ugliness of his heart. And he's destined to stay that way unless someone loves him. And then Belle comes along and she loves him. But she doesn't love him because he suddenly has become lovable. She loves him though he's a beast. That's the point. And as she loves him, even though he's a beast, guess what happens? He starts to change. And his heart starts to melt, and the beastliness of this character starts to be different. And so at the end, the great revelation is just a working out of what's been happening in his life, that as she has loved him, so his heart has changed. And so now his outer form is changed again to match his inner form. He's no longer a beast. He's now a handsome prince. That's the gospel. God doesn't come into your life and say, if you do this, if you deal with all the beastliness in your heart, then I will love you. No, he comes and loves you even though he sees you in the truest sense of the word and the beastliness in your heart. What do I mean by that? Well, a beast has teeth and claws. And my friends, I, I don't need to know you personally to be able to say, generally speaking, that we all have teeth and claws. And you know that some of the habits that you're, you can't kick, some of the ways you respond, leave their mark. The scars of the teeth, the scratches of the claws. Not just on you, though probably on you, but also on other people around you. There is a sense in which we all have a beastly side of us. And God comes to you and he sees that about you. And at that point, he loves you. And that's what changes you. That's why you can't understand the teaching of Jesus Christ and the life of Jesus Christ unless you also understand the death of Jesus Christ. Notice how Psalm 22 prophetically puts it. David prophesies about the cross. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. You see the beastliness of it? What's going on on the cross? On the cross, Jesus Christ says, I will take the teeth. I will take the claws. I will take the scars for all of the ways we claw and scratch at people around us and we often wound the people we love the most around us. I will take all of that on me on the cross, he says. I will be rejected so that you can be accepted. I will be punished so that you can go free. I will experience death so that you might have life. On the cross, I will love the unlovable and that's you, my friends, that's me. And when you really get that, when you realize what he's done for you on the cross, when you realize that he loves you, oh, how he loves you on the cross, 
it changes you. As the hymn puts it, he breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest, the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. That's grace. That's the love that changes our beastly, cold hearts, that warms them up, that brings the inner renovation that leads to the outer change, the grace of real change. Which leads us then, lastly, to the power to really change. Part of what makes Christianity utterly unique is the grace dynamic. It's completely different to every other system and thought, and I'd love to chat to you more afterwards about that. But the other part that makes it different is the power to change. In other words, Jesus Christ is not just like some teacher who says, here's the high standard, now go away and figure it out yourself and how you're going to do it. That wouldn't be much of a teacher, right? Imagine if, you know, children came in on Monday morning and the teacher for maths turned up and said, I'm here to teach you about advanced algebra this morning. It's really hard, but it's really impressive if you can do it. And then says, after having laid out all of the standards of it, says, now go away and figure it out all the best. What kind of a teacher would do that? And therefore, what kind of a person would you think of God if he says, here's the standards, my friend, but all the best, go and figure it out for yourself. No, he doesn't do that. He gives you the dynamic of grace, and then he gives you the great gift of the Holy Spirit to change. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, it's topped and tailed with that wonderful promise. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. On one level, the kingdom of heaven means to live under Jesus' authority with him as God's king, the king of heaven. But it would be slightly strange of the phrasing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, because that sounds like a gift. And if this is merely saying you have to live under his authority, that doesn't sound quite so gift-centered. But when it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, I think the gift it's talking about here is the kingly power that God will give you, the heavenly power that God will work in your life to effect this change. He's not going to leave you alone to figure this out on your own. He's not going to leave you disempowered with this high ideal, but the pain of the fallen realities. He's going to give you the gift of his kingly and heavenly power to change. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So with God, his great gift is not only the grace to change, but also the power of the Spirit to effect that change in your life. And therefore, I have to ask you, wherever you're coming from this afternoon, whether you know Christ or don't know Christ, and in my experience, many Christians just still don't get this. We know about grace, we get that, we want to change, but so often we can't change because we're still trying to do it the old way. We're still trying to do it with sheer effort. And it's not that there's no place for effort, but there's two very different types of effort. There is man-centered effort that says, I must do it, I can do it, just try harder. And there's God-centered effort that says, I'm going to pull all of my effort in the strength, in the power of the Spirit, God's love working in my life, God's power, His very presence in my life. I'm going to do it in His strength. And that really leads to change. What does Jesus say to us? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Not, apart from me, you can give it a good go. Apart from me, you'll accomplish some change. No, apart from me, you can do nothing. You, you can't change. You need my kingly power in your life. Perhaps you're aware of some besetting habit in your life. I don't know. 
some sin that you've tried to kick, some addiction that you just can't pull yourself away from, maybe a, an addiction to your device, maybe an addiction to a substance. Maybe there's some habit that people have pointed out to you and you long to change and you, you, you mourn the way that it affects people, but you've tried for a number of months and you just can't change in that area. And you feel despondent and you feel new year, new you, ha, yeah, right. You feel cynical about it. How can you really change? Well, don't trust in your own resources. Trust in God's resources. Come to him, humble yourself, say, I can't do this. Only you can do this. You say, look, this all sounds very abstract. Look, trust me, it's not abstract, which is why I put it to you that the most successful change program the world has ever known, or at least in the modern era has ever known, the 12-step program that started with Alcoholics Anonymous is all about this, or at least the first three steps are all about this. Because the two founders, Bill Wilson and Bob Smith, well, Bill Wilson had experienced this radical conversion to Christianity in his life, which meant that even though he'd had alcoholism for a number of years where he hadn't been able to change, suddenly he was able to change in the power of the Spirit. And so he and Bob formed the 12-step program explicitly on Christian formation. So the first three steps are this. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Are you prepared to admit that without Christ, you are powerless to effect the change in your life? We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. For them, it was the power of Jesus Christ. That was what they were founding it on. And then we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Have you delivered the care of your life over to the power of God. It's very concrete. I can't do this, Lord. You can do this. Let me give you an example before I close. Um, my children are wonderful. They're a bit full on. If you come to the 11M, you'll see that played out in real time as they charge around at the end. And, you know, they were on the drums this morning, <laughs> not actually in the band just afterwards, and I couldn't get them off. And, you know, sometimes in the morning, the, you know, like with children who are full on, it can be quite difficult. So, I think it was, um, you know, a couple of weekends ago on a Saturday, I was tired and groggy in the morning and the children were being challenging a breakfast, six-year-old and a, a four-year-old. And, um, you know, I'd got the breakfast already and then both were very strongly opinionated about it. they didn't want Rice Krispies, they wanted this, and then one shoved the other. And before we knew where we are, we had a bowl of Rice Krispies on the floor and we had the children shouting at each other. And it was just a lot emotionally to deal with, right? And in that moment, my tendency can be to be overly harsh and to kind of just try and stop it, shut down the emotion, just to kind of get some control on the environment. And I could feel that rising up inside me, and I don't want to be that guy. So what did I do? Well, by God's grace, I just remembered, I can't change. And so I sent a quick arrow prayer up to God saying, Lord, help me. I can't help myself in this situation. I need you to help me. And you know what? I, I felt a supernatural, just in that moment, calmness. It just calmed me right down. And I was able to be more present, more attentive. I was able to talk more softly to the boys. And you know what? It won't surprise you, of course. As I became more centered and became calmer, they calmed down. We cleared up the bowl of Rice Krispies. The morning didn't descend into a fast like it could have done. And please hear me. I, I get that wrong a lot, something I'm working on. But the point is, God can change you. The dynamic of grace to melt your heart and to change the beast of your heart and the power of the Spirit to really change you you say, I'm not sure it worked for me. Try God on this. Test him out on this. Pray to him. Humble yourself before him. Ditch man-centered effort. Engage God-centered effort. And let's help one another do this. And then see how change can really happen. Yes, this side of the new creation, we will never be sinless. But if we start to live this way, I put it to you that we will sin 
less. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need this. Our society has high ideals, but really no coherence, either about the direction of change or about how to bring this change about. But we have in your word true, deep, wonderful, spiritual resources to change us, to form us into the people that you want us to be, into the people in our better selves we long to be. And so please help us to see how grace and the power of the Spirit in our lives can affect that change. And please help me and my friends here and help us as a church to be a place where we work with one another and walk with one another in prayer for reliance on you to see this change brought about in our lives. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.